0: Well, good morning. My name is Tommy Clayton. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm so thankful that the Lord brought you here to worship with us at Grace Life. And I know we have some visitors, some family, and friends of those who are getting baptized at the end of the service today, so I extend you especially a welcome that you could stay with us through the worship service as well. We are in the Gospel of Mark, so you can make your way, if you have a copy of God's Word, to the second book in the New Testament, Matthew and then Mark. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's okay. If you have a a bulletin you received when you came in here, you can just flip that over. We're going to be referring to just a few verses in that section there. And we're in the middle of a series this Sunday, and it's a series that we've titled, Three Questions I Want to Ask Jesus. And Jesus actually addresses all three of these head-on in chapter 3. And this is part two, and it's this. Can God forgive my worst sin? Can God forgive my worst sin? What a great question to ask. And aren't you thankful that God isn't hiding the answer? It's not tucked away into some nuanced text somewhere you have to really understand Greek to get it. It's all over the place, isn't it? Just placarded all over the pages of Scripture. That is the central message of Christianity. And listen, it stands right at the heart of what we believe. God draws near sinners. Let that just resonate in your heart this morning. It's been a long week. We need to hear that. God draws near sinners. He is attracted to our guilt. That is such a counterintuitive message today. God is not repulsed by your neediness and by your guilt. He's attracted to it. He's drawn to it. So listen, God draws near sinners not to punish them, but to pardon them. He doesn't draw near us to fight with us. The fight is the conviction, right? That we resist so often. No, he draws near us not to fight us, but to forgive us and to free us, to set us free. The Bible says Jesus came to set the captives free. What an amazing, tremendous message. We don't have to be enslaved any longer to our sin, we don't have to be tied in this untieable knot to our guilt any longer. He came to pay our debt, to cleanse us from sin. To show us what true love really is and to restore us. That's the message for Christianity. That's the best news in the world. And listen, it ought to be on the front page of every Sunday paper in the world. Front page, top center, all bowed font and all caps. God forgives sinners. But you know what's sad? It's not there. And we don't expect it to be because secular newspapers don't print that kind of news on the front page. But here's what saddens my heart as a pastor and as a Christian. It's really hard to find that message in the church today. It really is. It's really hard to find it. If, if the church was a newspaper or the message was a Sunday edition, maybe it will be in the miscellaneous, some marginal note, or maybe the help wanted. You know, we've got some really bad sinners. God, if you can get around to it, you know, and all the other busyness. Or maybe it's in the obituaries. <laughs> it's not something to be celebrated at all, something to be hidden, tucked in the very back, shameful, sad, ugly truth. That ought to be on the front page. This is what we do every single week. In fact, God knows our hearts are so prone to forget this good news. You know what he did? This is the beauty of God understanding us. Even though we're, we're made in his image, we're created perfect and upright, but what sin did to us, it distorts us. We have just uh, myopic vision. We're, we're not able to, to remember the most important things. We have amnesia when it comes to the gospel. God built into his church these living reminders. You know there's three ordinances in the church? There's three ordinances that are perpetual reminders that God loves sinners, He draws near them, and He cleanses and forgives their sin. You know what it is? One is this, me preaching the good news to you. This is an ordinance. It's to happen every time God's people gather together in corporate worship. I am declaring to you the good news. That's a word in Greek, the gospel, euanglion. That means the good news to proclaim it. The second ordinance is one we're going to do after the service today. It's baptism. It's a visible reminder of what Christ suffered on behalf of sinners and how we are united to Him in that. He was buried and He was raised to walk in newness of life. And the other ordinance is the Lord's Supper. Some churches call it communion. It's just a 25-cent word uh, that means we take bread and we take juice or wine in some churches and it reminds us the body of Christ was broken for us. His blood was shed on our behalf so that we could be cleansed. He was broken so that we could be blessed. He was slaughtered and slain so that we could be pardoned. That's the good news that we're so prone to forget. We assume things. But God wants us to go back to the cross, back to the cross, back to the cross every Sunday. Martin Luther The great reformer said, every single week, I remind my people that they are declared blameless, that they're justified by faith alone and Christ alone, and there's nothing they could do to achieve that. He said, I preach that every single week to my people because every single week they forget. Now I don't think we're so much unlike them, right? This is not the 1400s in Germany. This is America, 2017. But we still forget the gospel, folks. I do. I'm a preacher. I get paid to do this, and I forget the gospel. i got to remind myself. And so I know it bears reminding, too, for for us together when we gather. God loves to forgive sinners, the worst kinds of sinners. This passage really addresses that question. Whether you, and I know there's probably not many left because of the time that's expired since then, what if you were an officer serving under the regime of Hitler and his Third Reich, and you served in a concentration camp and you tortured Jews and put them to death? And you carry in that guilt. Can God forgive that? Could He forgive that? You committing that atrocity to His people? What about an employee at an abortion clinic? What about a client who came to an abortion clinic to terminate their pregnancy? What about the boyfriend or the husband or the father that put pressure on somebody to do that? Can God forgive that? Is that the kind of sin that God can cleanse and pardon? So many people carry the scars of sexual sin, premarital sex, or postmarital sex. You're unfaithful to your spouse. So many are just entrapped in the sin of pornography. I read an article that was so staggering the other day. I wrote down some statistics. Tim Chalice wrote an article. When 2016, the year closed out, he said this People watched 4.6 billion hours of pornography in 2016 at just one website, the main one. billion hours. Let me put that in perspective. That's 524,000 years of just sitting watching something, collectively, everyone that did it. That's 17,000 lifetimes of pornography. You think that's a problem today? Do you think people carry around the guilt of that, the stigma of that, even people in the church? Because I'm not stupid. I've been a pastor for 20 years and I've seen that struggle. It's real. And there's guilt. Can God forgive that? Can he empower you to stop that and overcome that? Maybe you took drugs. Maybe you were in the throes of addiction. Maybe you stole money to provide for your habit. Maybe you sold drugs. Maybe you sold drugs to kids who ended their life or destroyed and wrecked their life. Can God forgive something like that? Maybe you cheated on a test. Maybe you lied to the IRS. About your income tax, maybe you got paid under the table. maybe you stole somebody's identity, their credit card, and went on a spending spree. You know all these things I'm talking about? I've known people in the church who've committed these things or were struggling with these things, and they found peace in Christ. These are not just things I'm throwing out there. I want to think where I want this to hit where you live. Maybe you hurt one of your kids. Maybe you hurt your spouse. Sarah and I were watching a documentary and we saw there was a man who had uh, a new baby, a new infant, and for some reason their schedule changed, and that week he had to drive the infant to drop this baby off at childcare. I think the child was eight months old. We know men. We, we have our pattern. Habitually, we drive to work we, mindlessly, and he forgot the baby was in the car, and you know what happened. He drove to work. He worked in like the sixth or seventh floor of a big building. CEO type. He heard sirens. He was at his desk. He said, what in the world? He looked down and he said, I just remember it was surreal. He said, I saw ambulances and firemen. I saw them busting out the window of a car. And I said, wait a minute, that's, that's my car. And then it hit him and the, and the child didn't survive. And he carried that guilt all of his life, carried that guilt. What do we do? We try to self-atone. Maybe we self-medicate. We just want the guilt to go away because we think God can't Help me. This is beyond his reach. There's nothing he can do for me. I'm just, I'm cursed to spend the rest of my life dealing with this on my own. God can't forgive me. How about a judge who took bribes, a lawyer who withheld information, a policeman who tampered with evidence? How about a serial killer? Can God forgive that? You know the son of Sam, murderer in the 1970s in England? I think it was in England. His name was David Borovitz. He killed eight people. He came to Christ in prison. He was a Jew and came to Christ. Somebody gave him a Bible and he read Psalm 34, 6. And it said, this poor man cried out to the Lord and he heard him and saved him from his sins. What about theft? What about if you raped somebody, killed somebody, committed incest? What if you molested children? Let's get real in here. Can God forgive that? Can He forgive that? Will He forgive that? Or is is there just a limit? Are there boundaries to what God is willing and able to cleanse and pardon? Because in our human way of thinking, we have compartments. We have limits. We have boundaries. And we throw those up and, and think God has them too. Guilt is a powerful and terrible reality in the world. It enslaves people. It cripples people. Drives some people insane. I don't know when it was. I don't know what grade I was in. I was a teenager, and I got a hold of this story by Edward, Edgar Allan Poe called A Tell-Tale Heart. Have you ever read that? If you've got a good stomach, there's a free PDF online. You can Google it later, okay? Not now, not while I'm preaching. Just wait, okay? That story gripped me as a young I don't know why exactly. It's just a story. I, don't, I think. I don't think there was any reality to it. But Edgar Allan Poe wrote it. He's already kind of a morose kind of guy, you know? obsessed with death and guilt. That's one of the themes in his stories. He wrote the story and the narrator is guilty of a crime. He has killed an innocent old man and he has hid the body beneath the floorboards in his house. And he's telling the story. The old man had an evil eye and it just bothered him and he couldn't handle it. So he murdered this man and he dismembered him. I know, I'm sorry, but he put him under the floorboards and the crime was committed. And then at four in the morning when he was finished, he had planned it for weeks. He had planned this for weeks. He left no stone uncovered. He covered his tracks. He was confident that he was going to get away with it. And there was a knock at the door at four in the morning. And it was three policemen who'd heard a shriek, a cry. And they knocked on the door. It was the law. The law was there. They were there to ask questions and to search his house. And he was confident at first. He invited them in. He was even so bold and confident and his ability to cover up his crime, he invited them in to sit, and he put a chair right on top of the place where he hid the body, and he sat there. And they began to talk, and they began to converse, and this, and this soft, dull sound started to, started to bother him and annoy him, and it was... Doo-doo, doo-doo, doo-doo. You remember the story? And it was the beating heart of the old man who was, he was pretty sure he was dead. He dismembered him, Okay. And it was the heart. It grew louder and louder and louder. And it was driving him insane to the point where he said, I will either, I either had to die or to scream. And he said, Okay, it's me, I confess. It's beneath the floorboards. And I thought, you know, that story really hit a nerve with me because people carry tremendous guilt. I think that whole story, the whole theme is about guilt. It's about guilt and what it does to humans. We can't handle it. God never intended for us to carry guilt. He wants it. He invites us to give it to him. I read the story called Confessions of Saint Augustine. Anybody heard of him? He was the greatest theologian of the first century, the Bishop of Hippo, and he wrote, it was the first kind of book, uh, it was the first book of that kind, and people ate it up. It was a bestseller. And it was his confessions. He was lamenting all the sins of his youth. And one of the things that cr- created the most neurotic paranoia in him was he could not forget a crime he committed when he was a, a young child. Why well, I say young child, a preteen, a tween maybe, okay? He and some of his mischievous buddies went into a pear orchard in the middle of the night that belonged to their neighbors, and they stole bushels and bushels and bushels of pears. Oh, sounds horrible, doesn't it? But that wasn't what got him. What got him was he didn't like pears. He didn't like them. He did it just for the fun of it, just for the sake of the mischief. Like vandalism, no point, just the thrill of being wicked and evil. They didn't eat any of the pears. They went and threw them to pigs, and he never got over it. He carried that guilt, tremendous guilt, for 30, 40 years until he came to Christ. And I think there's many people, even in the church, that if we were honest, we would say the same thing. We just cannot escape from the prison of guilt. Sin carries with it an awful condemnation, folks, doesn't it? We know that. God has put eternity in our hearts. We're made in his image, and the law accuses us, accuses us, accuses us. It never excuses. The law is a stranger to mercy. It knows nothing of it. So can God forgive my sin, my worst sin? Yes, he can. Yes, he will, without a doubt. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Well, Mark 3, that's how I know that. Turn to Mark 3. Let's read this. Mark chapter 3. We'll read it, and I'll tell you a little bit about what's going on here, and then we'll jump into our outline, okay? Mark chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He, and this He is Jesus here, okay? They're talking about Jesus. He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Verse 27, But... No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And then verse 28, don't miss this. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now here's what's going on here. This is a really important event. It's recorded. You know there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and sometimes they talk about the same event, sometimes they have their own unique perspective, but they all collaborate together, and they're a cohesive, united account of different witnesses that saw the same thing. This is recorded in three of those Gospels because it's so important, and if you read all three of those together, you get a really clear picture of what was going on. Jesus had just exercised a demon from a man. He just cast a demon out of a man. The man, it said, was, was mute. He was blind. He couldn't speak. He couldn't see. He couldn't hear. It was like Helen Keller. This demon, I don't know how. I wish I had answers like this. I have more questions than the Bible has answers for. I want to know, how can a demon do that to a person? I don't know, but he did it. This man was totally incarcerated and capacitated, was basically a, a rag doll for this demon. And that man was brought to Jesus, and Jesus cast this demon out. And all around, the people that saw it were astonished, as they always were. And they were saying this. He, Jesus, is the son of David. He's the Messiah. This is our Deliverer. Look at all these things he's doing. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He has authority over death and diseases and demons and disaster. He has authority, supreme authority. So they were saying this over and over. This is the son of David. This is the Messiah. Well, listen, that kind of talk can get you in trouble around religious people, and that's what happened. Because it says that the scribes, in another account, it says the Pharisees, they came down from Jerusalem, and they heard what these people were saying, and they weren't happy about it. Jesus was stealing their followers. Jesus' fame was increasing, and theirs was decreasing, and they had to take action. Now, if you were here last week, I told you one of the points was that part of discipleship is when you follow Jesus, sometimes you have to flee drama, right? Right? You've got to get away from the drama and focus on your mission field. And Jesus sets this example because the last section, it says that the Herodians and the Pharisees and the scribes were plotting together how they could destroy Jesus, but Jesus withdrew and he went with his disciples to invest in them. So Jesus fled the drama. But listen, sometimes drama follows you, doesn't it? You ever find that to be true? It's like, I'm trying, I'm trying to get away from this drama. I'm trying to get away from it, but it keeps following me. And that's what happened with Jesus. See, the scribes were chasing him all around. Now, these guys were cowards. It's really interesting the way the text sets this up because it says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, and this verb tense is in the imperfect tense, and all that means is they were saying it over and over and over and over. He has a demon. He has a demon. He's satanic. He's only doing this because he's empowered by the devil himself. But here's what's really unique about it. They weren't saying this to Jesus. They were saying it about Jesus chickens. They wouldn't say it to his face. You know anybody like that? They'll talk about you and around you and behind you, but never in front of you. They were gossiping. They were slandering. They were maligning Jesus's character. And this is where it gets interesting to me, trying to just, I wish I could have been there and seen that. Because Mark, Mark is all about showdowns, showdown at the OK Corral. This is like Clash of the Titans. Jesus has had enough. He knows people are being confused, He says, okay, look, what's Jesus do? Check this out. So Jesus called them to himself and said to them in parables, don't you love this? Can't you see this? They're like, he has a demon. Listen, guys, his power is satanic. And then somebody taps on their shoulder. and like, huh, what? And it's Jesus. He says, come here, guys, I need to talk to you. This has never happened before. Before, Jesus said, leave them alone. They're blind guides. But Jesus has had enough. So he calls the scribes. And in another account, the Pharisees. He says, guys, I want to tell you a little story. It's story time. We're going to have a few parables here because I'm going to help everybody understand who you are, what you came to do, and who I am, and how our missions contrast. So listen to what he says here. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. That's where they start. And man, I love this. I love the way this whole thing is set up because Jesus will take every opportunity he can and turn it into a gospel opportunity. He takes people who are slandering him, maligning his character, casting doubt on his person, and he turns it into another opportunity to preach the gospel to people. You just got to love this about Jesus. And by the way, if this, is, if this is your strategy to discredit somebody is just calling them names, dude, you're done already. They've already beat you. You know that, right? They're like throwing sticks at Jesus. They're like, yeah, well, he's satanic. I mean, their ministry is over. There's nothing they can do to stop Jesus. So they are looking at the supremely good one, and they are calling him the supremely evil one. And so this drama followed Jesus, and this is what he does. So here's the first point, okay? Can God forgive my worst sins? Yes, he can. You say, how do you know that? What is it about this passage that tells me and proves to me Jesus can forgive my sins? Well, first of all, let's, let's just think about this logically for a minute. If your sins are going to be forgiven you, If you're a captive and you need to be liberated and freed and let out of prison, what has to happen? I don't think Christians think about this enough and talk about this enough. Here's one of the first things that has to happen. Something's got to be done to Satan, guys. Now, I don't talk about Satan a whole lot here, (laughs) because I'd rather talk about Jesus. But Satan's all throughout the Bible. He's been very busy. He's very sly. He's very cunning. He is deceptive. He's a thief. He's the father of lies. He came to kill to plunder, to rob, to destroy, to confuse? I'm running out of fingers here. He's evil, right? Evil incarnate. And something's got to be done about Satan if we're going to be forgiven our sins. So what does Jesus do? He tells a parable about Satan and in the process explains how he and Satan relate to each other. And this is amazing. Well, first of all, he, he shows how their logic is satanic. Look at this. He says... How can Satan cast out Satan? Do you see the brilliance here of Jesus? He says, guys, think about this. Um, (laughs) Think about it. I came to unburden people. I came to cleanse people. I came to teach people the truth. I came to set the captives free. I came to preach the good news. And you think Satan is going to empower me to release his own captives? There's no strength in division. He says, you're saying Satan's entire organization has like an autoimmune disorder and it's attacking itself. Satan's not stupid. He's a lot of things, but he's not stupid. Satan is not going to empower Jesus to set captives free because Satan's not interested in that at all. You even see that when demons are are exercised in the New Testament. They are quite unwilling to let go of their host. Some of the cases, they cast them down and shake them violently as a last ditch. Well, there we got to let you go because Jesus has more power than us, and we're going to kick you on the way out. No, Satan's not interested in releasing any of his captives. He's not interested in conquering his own kingdom. He's got more important things to worry about. So Jesus, first of all, points out how flawed his logic is. But the second thing he does is look at verse 27. This is really interesting. He says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Now what's Jesus talking about here? He's saying, look guys, if you really want to know how I'm able to command these demons to flee their host, and they don't argue with me, they obey instinctively. If you really want to know, I'll tell you the truth. It's not because they're my brothers or they're my allies, it's because they're my slaves, and they do my bidding. They do my bidding. They have no choice but to obey me. It's not because I'm in a league with them, it's because I'm in power over them. I'm supreme to them. And he tells this parable when he says, look, imagine that Satan is a strong man because he is. We don't like to admit that sometimes. You know, the Bible calls the devil the prince of this world, the God of this age. It says he has the power of death. Those are some pretty gripping passages to read. He is a the strong man, and he takes people prisoner. He does. He ensnares people, holds them captive. Satan is behind every false religion in the world. How many people are entrapped in those systems? They come to my house just about every Saturday and knock on the door. He has many prisoners. And Jesus says, no, the only way I'm able to invade his kingdom and to plunder him is because I am stronger than him. And if you're going and Jesus tells this beautiful parable, he says, look, if you're going to invade somebody's kingdom and you're going to steal and plunder all their goods, you better be stronger to them and you better buy them. And i just love the imagery here. I love the imagery. Think about how humiliating that is in broad daylight. You go into another man's house and you say, hey, I'll be taking, let's see, this and this, him and him and him and her and her. And the, you know what? I'm going to take everything because they're mine anyway. And I never gave you permission to take them. I'm taking them back. Well, who do you think you are? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the humiliation of just openly and publicly binding him and saying, "You know what? You're going to watch, and there's not anything you're going to do about it. In fact, you're going to like it." That's what Jesus does. He plunders Satan's goods. You say, "What are these goods? People? It's souls." Jesus entered the strong man's house. He bound him. He plundered his house, and he released and set free all his captives. Something has got to be done about Satan. Listen, do you know Colossians chapter 2, uh, one of the epistles in the New Testament, it said that Jesus nailed our sins to the cross and he put Satan and his demons to an open shame and humiliated them publicly. Do you know that's exactly what Jesus did? He's doing that here before the cross. I mean, think about it. He's going around healing people, some of whom were given a disease, ...through the power of Satan, I'm not sure exactly how... ...but Jesus is showing, I'm plundering your kingdom, buddy, right now... ...in front of you, and there's nothing you can do about it. And I love that. I'm all about that. Nothing you can do about it. Jesus never talked trash to Satan or the demons. He didn't have to. His actions spoke for themselves. And listen, what's, what's the ramifications of that? One is this. We do not have to be afraid of Satan, guys... I meet so many people, and they are so paranoid. Satan's behind every bush. I've got to go in every room at night and pray over every kid and pray over this and pray over that and bind this. Listen, Satan is not sovereign. Okay, He's not sovereign. God is sovereign. And Satan has been bound, and Jesus Christ is plundering his kingdom. Every time another soul comes to Christ, that's another soul that's been plundered from Satan's kingdom. And we're never told to fear the devil. We're told to resist him, we're told to be watchful, we're told to be sober, we're told to be vigilant, but we are never told to be afraid of Satan. And look, I want to be a good pastor to you too, and I know many of you have very different and and sometimes diverse theological backgrounds. I'm a Bible guy. This is a Bible church, and I have a verse for everything, even if I take it out of context, okay? (laughs) And I know there's a lot of people, and they, they're, they're into this, I'm binding Satan, and, and they talk to the devil, and they, and they you know, um, I, I've met some people like that. Look, that, that's, I, I don't find any warrant for that in the Bible. I'm not saying that's wrong to do that, but I have never talked to Satan in my life, ever. I don't talk to the devil. I've never been told to talk to the devil. I don't need to talk to the devil. Jesus did that for me. He's a liar anyway. I talked to, talk to the Lord about that. Because listen, I don't have to fight the devil. Jesus already did that. Jesus already fought him and has won the victory for me and secured it. So God tells me my responsibility is to resist the devil and he will flee from me. I like that, don't you? Resist the devil and he will run for you. And that's, that's because, and we're not preaching on those texts this morning, James chapter 3 and 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him being steadfast in the faith. I think that means clinging to Christ. Clinging to the gospel and Satan can't handle that. He's out of there. Yip, yip, yap. You can't handle it. I remember when I was a kid, grew up in the country, down a gravel road, there were dogs everywhere. Now back then, in the 80s in Arkansas, nobody kept the dog on a leash. You would have been considered cruel back then to do that. And so dogs had free reign in our neighborhood. And sometimes there were pretty scary dogs around our neighborhood. Our neighbor had the biggest, ugliest, sorry if you're a Doberman Pincher fan. It was the biggest, ugliest Doberman Pincher I've ever seen in my life. And it just scared me to death. Me and my brother, that dog tormented us. In fact, when we rode our bikes down the gravel road, we would have to carry rocks with us because that thing was going to chase us and bark at us. And that was our, that was our backup plan. You know, one day my brother and I were minding our own business. We were in our yard. We were playing basketball. It had to be on a Saturday because my dad worked all the time. And he was there that morning. And he was doing yard work in the front. And my brother and I were playing, I don't know, what's that pony or whatever horse. And just out of nowhere, we hear this low rumbling. And we turn around. That stinking Doberman Pincher had the audacity. The audacity. I don't know where my German Shepherd was. Thanks. He had the audacity to come into our yard, uninvited, invade our private space, and growl and snarl at my brother and me. Now look, as a young kid, I had envisioned 20 ways that dog could tear my head off. And I was paralyzed. All I had was my bigger brother, who was a chicken too, and a basketball. I had one shot at this. And I'm thinking, what in the world am I going to do? Because that dog seriously upset at me. And then out of nowhere. He came over the hill. It was my dad. My dad came. Man, why am I wanting to cry right now? Isn't this crazy? It's been an emotional morning, guys. My daughter's getting baptized. Bear with me. I'll never forget that. Something came out of my dad's mouth. I don't know if, if I could spell it for you. It was like, yeah, yeah, something like that. My dad positioned himself between me and that Doberman pincher, my brother and I, that Doberman pincher. And he said a few things that Dover and Pincher, and man, that thing was gone. He was gone, and I don't remember ever seeing it anywhere, even down our gravel road again. And when I think about that, I gotta think, you know, there's some parallels there to what God in Christ has done for us. He publicly humiliated and put Satan and his minions to an open shame, bound him, plundered his goods, and set us free. And listen, we don't have to be afraid of Satan any longer. Ever. He's been removed. He's been taken out of the way. For good, something has to be done about Satan, and something has been done. Praise God. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Can I get a glory or a hallelujah or something? Help me here, guys. (laughs) That makes me want to do backflips down the aisle. You know how many people are just in bondage to thinking they got to wake up and say the right things and do the right things, and they have little crazy... Guys, Satan is a defeated foe. His stinger has been removed. He's a roaring lion that has no teeth. He's been removed out of the way. And one day, God's going to throw him into the lake of the fire forever. And the only reason God, I like what Ron Dunn says, the only reason God has allowed the devil to live is because God has a purpose for him. He uses him to build his kingdom. Isn't that amazing? If God didn't have any use for Satan, he would have killed him a long time ago. So that's the first point. Satan has to be removed, and he has been. And it was public. It was hum- humiliating. Thing. You know, one more quick illustration. I know I'm running out of time here. Avengers, I like the movie. If you're against it, I'm sorry. I'm for it. 2012, Avengers, love it. One of my favorite movies of all times. Thor is in there, and the Incredible Hulk, and Iron Man, and all the, all the, uh, the heroes and the villains. And the villain in that particular movie is a guy named Loki. Okay? You know Thor from another planet? His little brother, he's a demigod, and he's evil, and he's malicious. And the whole movie, this guy, low-key, he's arrogant. He doesn't really fight anybody. That's not his thing. He, he plays mind tricks. He gets inside their head. He manipulates. He lies. He talks himself out of fighting, and he leaves. He's always tricking people, and, and this was like a great movie because the whole, the whole, um, whole movie is building toward this momentum. It's building toward this scene. And you're, you want it really bad as the audience. You want this guy to go down because he's so arrogant. He's so proud. He's so cocky. And all the other Avengers, he just talks with them. And, 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 and there's some foreshadowing. and You know the time is coming. Well, the very end of the movie, he meets the Incredible Hulk. You remember this scene? <laughs> I love it. You've got to see this. You've got to Google this if you haven't seen it. Just a 30-second piece here. And there's a point where Loki is facing off with the Hulk, and he's scared. And he says, Enough! Enough! He says, you, all of you, are beneath me. I am a god, and I will not be bullied, and he's interrupted. This is the only monologue throughout the whole movie he doesn't finish. He's interrupted because the incredible Hawk takes him. The animation is incredible. He takes Loki by the, the ankles, by the feet, and, and, and it's like a dog with a ragdoll, and he takes him and goes, pop, 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 on the concrete, Do you remember this? And then he looks at him and he's not satisfied. It's like a dog with a little toy. And he does it back and forth. And then Loki is sitting there whimpering going, uh, and the incredible Hulk Hulk is walking off and he turns his head and he says, puny God. You remember that? Because that's perfectly illustrating. What does the devil do? He talks a lot. He slanders. He accuses. He condemns. He lies. He betrays. In that movie, that's what Loki does. He talks, and Hulk smashes. And he does it really well. And that's exactly what Christ did to Satan. He plundered his goods. So that's the first thing that has to be done. Something has to be done about Satan. And the second thing is this. Something has to be done about sin. Because listen, even if Satan is taken out of the way, we still got a problem. We are fallen, wicked sinners. And God is holy, and he's just. And we got a problem. Because how can fallen people stand in the presence of a holy God? What's gonna happen with that guilt? The accuser's taken out of the way, great. What's he gonna do about the sin? Listen to this. This is so beautiful, and I gotta I gotta qualify this. I think so many people, I think so many people miss one of the most beautiful and powerful truths in this passage because they're so hung up on what in the world is this unforgivable, unpardonable sin? that leads to death that Jesus is talking about. They get so hung up on that. We'll just hit the pause button on that for a minute, okay? We'll talk about that in a minute. I want you to drink in what verse 28 says. Just drink it in. Don't think about anything else but this. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Man, just drink that in for a minute, guys. Just drink that in. Let that... Just like a parched body, let that just go all throughout your spiritual system and just quench the doubts that you have. Jesus says, There is nothing that you could do, there is nothing that you could say, there's nothing that you could think that the Son of Man would not be uh, unwilling to forgive. There's no such thing as a willing sinner who is asking forgiveness and an unwilling Savior. Who will withhold it. No such thing. It is never recorded one time in the Bible that somebody asked Jesus for pardon and for cleansing and for forgiveness. And he said, You know what? I don't think so. Not once. In fact, the Bible says that the Lord is good and eager to forgive. Psalm 86 5 says that. Psalm 130, verse 4 says this If you, O Lord, were to mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you, there's forgiveness so that you may be feared. Man, those are powerful verses, guys. The whole Bible, it's like it goes out of its way to reassure us that God is willing to forgive any and every sin that you could ever utter. And it's really interesting the way Jesus says this here. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. In another passage in Matthew and Luke, he says, whoever blasphemes the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. Jesus is saying, you can do anything to me that you want and I will pardon you. I mean, think about that. If you went to the White House and engaged in this blasphemous, slanderous, outrageous argument with with the president, you'd be in serious trouble, wouldn't you? What if you did that to a king of a foreign nation? Jesus is saying, he's the king of all kings. He's the king of the world. And he says, there's nothing you could do to me that I would be unwilling to forgive you. Man, just drink that in. No other religion in the world, folks. Go and go and check them out. There's, I tell my kids this all the time. There is no other worldview that offers you what Christianity does. I was reading a story about. His name is uh, Jared Wilson, and he was in a taxi cab in Washington D.C. And the driver was a Muslim, and they were talking to the Muslim, and he said, oh, "Will your God forgive anything?" And the Muslim said, "Oh no, he will not forgive. He will not forgive murder." And he said he he had a kind of a nuanced view from most Muslims he had met, but he said. Murder is too horrible and there's nothing God can do for somebody who's guilty of that sin. It's just too great. And Jared Wilson said, "What a joy it was to share with him. No, brother, listen. We're all guilty of murder. If you ever hated in your heart, the Bible says you're a murderer. If you've ever lusted in your heart, you're an adulterer. I mean, look at the law how it just universally accuses and stops all of our mouths. But the Bible has the only remedy for that, and it's Jesus Christ took the place of sinners." That's the whole context here. This is Jesus saying this. This is not Fox News or Drudge Report. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. This, is, this came from the lips of the Son of God Himself. He came down and He said, there's nothing you could ever do that I would be unwilling to forgive. Man, that's powerful. Jesus is gracious. He's gracious. And this ought to make us do backflips down the aisle that ever sin that is willing to be pardoned. That's why Micah chapter 7 said, who is a pardoning God like you? J.C. Rowell said this once. These words are sweet and precious. All sins shall be forgiven. The sins of youth and age, the sins of head and hand and tongue and imagination, the sins against all God's commandments, the sins of persecutors like Saul, the sins of idolaters like Manasseh in the Old Testament, the sins of open enemies of Christ like the Jews who crucified him, the sins of backsliders from Christ like Peter, all All may be forgiven. The blood of Christ can cleanse all away. The righteousness of Christ can cover all and hide all from God's eyes. This doctrine is the crown and glory of the gospel. The very first thing it proposes to man is free and full pardon, forgiveness, complete remission, without money and without price. Let us lay hold of this doctrine without delay. That's beautiful, isn't it? What has Jesus done? He has taken our place, guys. He has taken our place. The guilt is there and it's real. So what does Jesus do? He does what he told King David in the Old Testament. Remember? The prophet confronted David. Nathan the prophet confronted David, who committed murder, adultery. He lied. Some commentators say he broke every sin in the the command, every commandment in the Bible. And lied about it and tried to cover it up. And the prophet confronted him. And David confessed his sin. He confessed it. And the prophet said, you shall not die. God has put away your sin. You say, how can God do that? How can God be just and just look away from our sin? Because listen, God provided a substitute. He provided a lamb, right, to be slaughtered in our place, the lamb of God. Christ is our substitute. He takes the penalty so that he can give us pardon. That's the beauty and the glory of the gospel. He takes the curse and he gives us the blessing. And that story that Edgar Allan Poe wrote, the narrator says, I either had to scream or die. And Jesus says, you don't have to do that. I'll do that for you. You come to me and I'll scream out in agony and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I'll die and I'll say, it is finished. That's the glory and that's the beauty of the gospel. That's what Isaiah said. Though your sins be like scarlet and crimson, they shall be as white as snow. Do you know what that means? That means that there is no stain of sin that's too deep, that's too dark, that's so disgusting that God can't remove it. I used to be a carpenter a long time ago, and I did flooring. And I had a helper, and he was a little bit clumsy. And we were working on a a light-colored floor. We had sanded it down, and we were going to stain it a light color. And we were also working on some bookshelves. I don't know why, but the guy wanted dark cherry bookshelves and a light... Hardwood floor, and my friend took the cover off this stain, which is named perfectly. Did you know that? I can't think of a better name for that stuff that you buy that's, that's oil-based and it's dark. Stain, it does what it says it does. He was clumsy, and he knocked it off a ladder, and it spilt on this floor right in the middle. Oh, I wanted to pull. I had hair back then, and I wanted to pull it all out. I sanded. I got, I got paint thinner. I prayed. I cried. I tried to cover it up. I couldn't, I couldn't get that stain out. And we had to go to the owner who was a wealthy man and he was very gracious. He said, guys, don't worry about it. Forget about it. And he put an area rug over it. But it still bothered me. It still bothers me to this day because I know that stinking stain is there and there ain't nothing anybody can do to get it out except cut the wood out and replace it. Now, ain't nobody got time for that. It's too much money. Listen, whatever stain it is that you're carrying around, God says it can be as white as snow. It can be as white as the pure-driven snow because of Christ, His righteousness His perfect, pure life is offered to you so that you don't have to die. Well, what's this last part here? Because I know the question is, wait a minute, wait a minute, hang on. If he says there's no sin that can't be forgiven, what's this business about the unforgivable sin? I'm going to make this really fast. Okay, first of all, I've met a lot of people in ministry who are so scared they've committed this sin. It keeps them up at night. They wonder, man, just something I did a long time ago. I blasphemed Jesus or something of that nature. Listen, I can assure you as a pastor, I will stake my life and my ministry on it. If you are concerned that you may have committed this sin, you are the last person in the world that God wants to be troubled about it. Does that help you a little bit? If you're concerned at all, let me say that again. If you are concerned or troubled at all that you may have committed this sin and offended God, you are the last person that the Lord wants to be burdened by what this sin is or what it's not. Because I can promise you, you didn't commit it. The person that commits this sin, they'll never be troubled by it. This is blind, willful, um, intentional, a hardened. This is, this is the person with a conscience so hardened, so hardened. They look at the supreme good, Jesus Christ. They look at all of his beauty, all of his power, all of his holiness, All of his healings, all of his casting out demons, all the the gospel sermons he preached, all the forgiveness he extended, and they say, he is evil incarnate. That's the person. That's the person that Jesus is talking to here. At the very beginning of this, he's talking to people that have a very soft conscience. He says, there's no blasphemy that, that can't be forgiven. At the end of this, he's talking to people who have a very hardened conscience. And here's what's interesting. Jesus loves Pharisees. Did you know that? This is a gracious warning to them. This blows my mind when you think about it. He's confronting them. He is. He's confronting them with truth, but this is love. He didn't have to do this. He says, guys, you better be careful. In fact, I want to read the message version of this because it's really good. Listen to this. Jesus says this in the message. Eugene Peterson wrote this translation. Listen to this carefully. I'm warning you. There's nothing done or said that can't be forgiven. But if you persist in your slanders against God's Holy Spirit, you are repudiating the very one who forgives, sawing off the branch on which you're sitting, severing by your own perversity all connection with the one who forgives. He's saying, you better be careful. And here's what's this is the only warning that I would issue. Jesus is talking to religious people here, he's talking to scribes, he's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to people who think that the kingdom, entrance to the kingdom, is your goodness. You don't need Jesus. In fact, that whole thing he's doing is satanic. He's looking at the people that think you get in by offering God a record of your own instead of realizing you have nothing to offer God at all. That's why, listen, it's harder for religious people to understand the gospel than it is for harlots and tax collectors. Did you know that? It really is. It's not that hard for sinners to embrace the message Uh, that Jesus had to die for their sins because they're so sinful. So listen, if you're troubled and your conscience bothers you and you think you've committed the unpardonable sin, I can assure you that if you're even troubled about it at all, you're not the one that God wants to be be concerned about that. And a lot of people in ministry, I worked at a a ministry in California where it was a, was a, a preacher who preached on the radio, and man, we got more calls and emails and letters about that particular sin than any other. And Jesus doesn't want people that are troubled about that sin to be burdened by it. He's talking to people that were hardened, that called his ministry satanic, that were so resisting the Holy Spirit. You know what the Holy Spirit, one of his primary roles is to convict you of sin? So when the Holy Spirit is saying you're a sinner and you need grace, and you say, no, I don't, who are you? You're satanic. Persistence and consistency in that is what Jesus is talking about here. Now, the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the real question is not whether or not God can forgive your worst sin. He can. The real question is, are you willing to confess your need for forgiveness? That's the question, my dear friends. Are you willing to confess your need, to agree with God that you're a sinner and that you're helpless and that you're hopeless apart from the life and death of Jesus Christ? And he says, come to me, all you who are burdened, And labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will set you free from your condemnation and your guilt. That's good news, isn't it?